Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a Hugo-nominated podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. And today, we're going to be talking about economics in science fiction with our incredible special guest, Noah Smith, who blogs about economics at Bloomberg and also tweets as No Opinion and is just found everywhere that people are freaking out about economics. Welcome, Noah. Hey, thanks for having me on. Super exciting. We're going to talk about like how science fiction deals with economics and how actual real life economics is kind of science fictional and just like how to make sense of all of it. So we wanted to start out by kind of thinking about how economics is a form of world building, both in fictional worlds and in the real world. And in what ways do economists kind of build versions of the world in order to try to understand economic forces? Do you think that economists are basically writing speculative fiction when they create models and kind of forecast? To some degree, yeah, they are. But I think that, you know, economists these days don't think that much about what kind of overall world they're building. They're a little more humble. The era of economists who just wrote these big tracts about, like, how we organize society is kind of on the way out. Milton Friedman, you know, he's, he's kind of on the way out. There are still a few people who do it. Uh, Thomas Piketty, you know, is one of those. But for the most part, economists in academia try to focus on how can I understand this one thing that's happening in the world. I'm curious about that because I feel like so much of economics now often comes back to game theory and looking at pretty much the prisoner's dilemma as like the smallest unit of economic life. Is that true? Is that just because I'm reading, you know, journalism about economics and so I'm not seeing what's really going on in academia? Well, no, I mean, that, you're absolutely right. Game theory has kind of taken over in, in the old days. Economists like to think that the whole economy is in this equilibrium, you know, everything just sort of equilibrates. And then along came the game theorists and said, well, no, actually, sometimes, like the prisoner's dilemma, you can get a bad outcome, even if everyone's behaving very rationally. Strategically, you can get a bad outcome because people are, are inefficiently competing with each other. Or it can enable some some pretty interesting stuff to happen as well when people cooperate. So So now people are thinking about that. Right. And actually, it's interesting that you sort of mentioned the idea of people behaving rationally, because that's something that I you find in old school science fiction, like old school science fiction from the, from the 40s, 50s, you know, the golden age or whatever. All of the characters are incredibly rational and have these like very kind of serious, like reasoned conversations where they analyze their situation in very kind of like rational ways. And I feel like old school economics also has this assumption that everybody is a rational actor and that everybody is acting in their perfect self-interest with perfect information. And do you think that as science fiction has kind of moved towards a more complicated view of human nature, economics has kind of done that as well, maybe a little bit? Definitely so. I think less so than science fiction, which is focused more on characters and, and realistic emotions and things. Economics went through this phase where, where basically people realized that rationality had thinking that everyone was hyper-rational had hit a dead end. And Larry Summers, who's a famous economist and, and commentator, wrote a paper, which he never published because they would have made him take this out. But the first sentence of it was, there are idiots. Look around. <laughs> 
So I wonder if you could talk to us, getting away from these questions about science fiction for a minute, let's just talk about economics. So what would you say is a kind of mainstream idea in economic theory about why people are forming relationships with each other and why the economy functions? Because maybe this goes back to that prisoner's dilemma again, because I feel like just as writers kind of try to come up with reasons why people behave in a certain way, economists are also thinking about like, well, why do people do idiotic things? Or why do people do things that are against their own interests or against other people's interests? So what's, how do you do that as an economist? How do you think about that? Oh, there's a million different ways. So, you know, behavioral What's economists. the best way? <laughs> no one knows <laughs> yet. Uh, ask us in 100 years. By that time, we'll have either solved all our problems or we'll all be dead. So. Okay. Or, or both. Yeah. Well, all of us in this room will probably be dead. So that's mm. great. Let's just put it off till I'll then. I'll be a brain in a vat. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So there's different ways. Right. So, for example, uh, if you're a behaviorist, you could think about your inability to commit to something. You say, I'm going to go to the gym. You buy a gym pass and then you just don't go. If you are a sort of political economist, you could talk about how people, you know, how these voting coalitions form that don't always achieve the, the happiest result for all the people in the coalitions. If you're a macroeconomist, you could talk about sort of failures at the macroeconomic level, you know, or not. You know, some people argue, well, this isn't actually failing. This is actually the best that we could do. Uh, What's so, an know, example of a macroeconomic failure? Macroeconomic failure uh, would be the Great Recession. <laughs> that was a big failure. Um, suppose that all the companies you know, depend on banks to lend to them or else they can't, uh, you know, get financing to buy all the stuff they need to buy or pay their workers on time or whatever. And then suddenly all the banks suddenly say, sorry, we can't lend to you because we're now involved in saving ourselves from some stupid mess that we got into by buying and selling a whole bunch of ridiculous housing bonds, uh, which were very science fictional. And, uh, and we can't, <laughs> sorry, we can't lend to you anymore because we have to deal with that. And people are like, well, I guess I'm going to have to close up shop and fire all my workers and blah, blah, blah. And a whole bunch of people get unemployed and they get really mad. So I want to drag it slightly back to science fiction and talk about like someone who was a science fiction writer and also is one of the most important economic thinkers of the era we're living in. And I'm, of course, referring to Ayn Rand. And here's actually a clip from Ayn Rand explaining her philosophy of objectivism and how perfect selfishness is perfectly rational. That each man must live as an end in himself and follow his own rational self-interest. Obviously, Ayn Rand wrote science fiction. Her novel, Atlas Shrugged, is kind of this futuristic story of like government repression and railroads and steel and everything. Is she an important economic thinker? It feels to me like she's shaping the era we're living in in a lot of ways. What do you think about that? Maybe so, but I think that to a large degree, people want to believe certain things, and then they go looking for a thinker who seems to validate what they already want to believe. Your, your average... Ayn Rand fan. He's like an 18-year-old guy who thinks, I am a Superman. I can do anything. Why, why don't people recognize my greatness? Why don't people recognize that I am a great thinker and deserve all the money and power, etc.? And then, you know, he goes looking for a, a thinker who's going to validate this. So he reads Atlas Shrugged or whatever. And then sort of that becomes a mythos that validates his own self-conception. I, I knew that guy. I think we all knew that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but you actually had like the other day, Herman Cain was talking about the gold standard and he used the word moochers, which is like this quintessential, you know, Ayn Rand word to describe like this kind of theory of, yeah, moochers. You know, just speaking for myself, I think it's obvious that in any society, you have the possibility that someone's going to try to free ride on communal resources. You have the tragedy of the commons. You have people who pee in the pool. 
And it turns out that's why your eyes burn in a public pool, not chlorine. I just found this out. I'm very mad about it because anyway, <laughs> it's from pee. But so, <laughs> so there's people who pee in the pool and who spoil sort of public resources. And every society does kind of have to be vigilant against those people in some way or else it's very hard because then you have some people who are you know working for the good of the community and other people who are just sort of taking from the community, maybe because they read Anne Rand. I don't know. That, see, what's ridiculous is that you read Anne Rand, you become enamored of this idea of take whatever you can get, be selfish, and then you that actually makes you into a moocher. Thinking the rest of the world is trying to mooch off you kind of turns you into a moocher. You're like, well, they're all trying to mooch off me, so I'm going to mooch off them. Then you become a moocher. And the people who didn't read Anne Rand are off you know, thinking, well, I should give back to my community. And then, and then so that's how I think the moochers really get started. But, <laughs> it's um, the irony. It's like the, the, the tragic irony of moochers. Right. So to what extent are we living in a world that's shaped by bad science fictional ideas, like all of the bad ideas about automation and, and robots and the idea that, like, basically nobody's going to have a job anymore in five minutes because of robots and some of the other ideas that kind of come from science fiction, that be- but that become mainstream policymaking ideas? You know, I wonder about that, and I just don't know, because the, the robots idea, we've seen no evidence of it so far. All the, you know, the research that says that robots are replacing people gets debunked really quickly. We have you know, essentially record low levels of unemployment right now. And essentially everyone who wants a job probably now has a job, not necessarily a good job, but a job of some sort. You mean in the United States? In the United States. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, and there have been industries that have been kind or, of or Japan. automated. There have been industries where like, like the coal mining industry where there used to be tons of jobs and the jobs have been reduced because of it more yeah. efficient. That's great. I don't have to be a coal miner. I, I didn't want to be. Right. Uh, or, or a farmer or, you know, or I mean... Not to knock farmers, but I don't want to, like, you know, actually manually pick crops in a field. I'd rather have a machine do it. Anyway, And if you look at the countries that have the most robots, South Korea and Japan and Germany, these countries are all doing, and Denmark, these countries are doing great unemployment. Everybody has a job in these countries. Not necessarily a great job, not necessarily a job they'd love, but everybody has a job. And so there's just no evidence this happening so far. But for hundreds of years now, literally hundreds of years, because the Luddites were about 200 years ago, people have been scared of being put out of a job by automation. And the, the mass obsolescence of humanity has not happened yet, but I can't guarantee it won't happen sometime. Maybe it will. And we don't know. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, people will always, this, this argument will never go away. Are we kind of living in a bad science fiction novel right now, though, because of just, you know, all of this, like, upheaval and fear of technological change and, like, weaponized nostalgia and all these, like, terrible theories of human nature that are becoming policy? Well, I feel like we're living in a good science fiction novel because good novels are about things you wouldn't want to actually have happen to you. No one (laughs) wants to actually walk into Mordor or get their hand cut off by Darth Vader, but it's pretty fun to watch a movie about or read a book about. (laughs) So (laughs) we really are living in the cyberpunk dystopia that the cyberpunk authors imagined. And it is just amazing to me every day because I read so many books by William Gibson and Neil Stevenson and Bruce Sterling and all of those people in the 80s. I read that stuff. And that's real now. You have China has this social credit score and and people are wearing these like biometric ankle monitors and like giant corporations know everything about you and can use it to screw you over with algorithms you can never even tell are screwing you over. And there's cyber warfare and there's, you know, sort of international cyber spies doing crazy stuff. And it's just we are living in the world that they envisioned. And of course, it's more fun to read about than live in sometimes. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the cyberpunk future is that it's imagining how capitalism will evolve into something that looks a little bit more like feudalism. So we won't get kind of a post-capitalist world, we'll get like a pre-capitalist world because of capitalism. Do you think that's something that's going on right now? Is that a thing that can really happen from the point of view of economics? I think that there is that distinct possibility. No one really knows because those aren't the kind of things you can really get evidence for and test with a statistical model. So we don't really know. But, you know, feudalism was sort of a system that evolved over a couple thousand years of agricultural age. So maybe it is just a natural end state of what economies evolved toward without major external disruption, such as invention of new kinds of technology, massive wars, environmental catastrophes, blah, blah, blah. Maybe feudalism is the stable thing where you just have some parasites uh, called nobles grow to <laughs> moochers. 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 The, 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 the real it. moochers grow to enormous size and sort of teach everybody else you're a peasant. This is your lot in life. You will labor as a peasant. And that's just sort of the stable state of humanity when we have technological, environmental, and geopolitical stability. And then along comes Genghis Khan and knocks it all over. That would mean because we're in a period of instability in the in the real world, not in like Game of Thrones or whatever, but like in the real world, are you saying that that couldn't really happen? Like we couldn't head toward like this kind of stable state of feudalism because we're dealing with, say, environmental catastrophe and like impending nuclear war, or could we? I do think climate change will severely disrupt the existing economic and geopolitical and social systems. But in terms of technology, you know, we, we constantly see new things getting invented. But in terms of actual productivity in the economy, that's really been slowing down mm -hmm. recently. Uh, we saw this a slowdown in the 1970s and 80s and then this burst of new productivity in the 90s when we invented information technology and stuff. And <laughs> sometime around 2005 or six, that petered out as well. And we're back to slow productivity growth, not quite as bad as before the Industrial Revolution, but it's actually pretty slow. And so you have to be thinking maybe all the stuff they're inventing now is just easier ways to sort of just like annoy people or entertain people or track people that we don't like or imprison migrants or something like that. And then it's not really stuff that's producing better standards of living for the mass of society nearly as much as it used to be. If that is our future, as technological disruption actually disintegrates, despite the rhetoric of Silicon Valley venture capitalists who tell you that disruption is everywhere, if actual technological disruption goes away, what you might have is just these giant companies like Amazon becoming the new nobility that just sort of rules over you and you're on Amazon's manor, which is now a warehouse. Oh, man. Yay. So I have just one more question about that, which always um, irks me when I read economists talking about this idea of productivity. Why is that so great? Why do we always need expanding productivity? Like, isn't there maybe a possibility that we might aim for like some kind of stable state where it's like, well, we don't have huge productivity, but everybody can eat? Or is it just that if we don't increase productivity, people's lives will get worse? Well, there's there's three good answers to that. So I'll give you all three. <laughs> <laughs> the first answer is that Africa is still quite poor and much of South Asia is still quite poor and they will get rich by us buying their stuff. And the more our productivity grows, the more of their stuff we will want to buy. And so that's good. Uh, the second reason is because productivity growth will also allow us to become more environmentally sustainable because, well, it, it won't necessarily. So it could make us less sustainable. Mm -hmm. Or if we invent, you know, like 
better clean energy. Green and, tech. And, yeah, green tech. Then we really need that to sort of become sustainable. Uh, and not just from climate change, but a lot of environmental sort of resource overuse in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the third reason is sort of more speculative, but the idea is that with slow productivity growth, people start to think of the world as a zero-sum game. People start to think that anything that I gain, you must lose. The only way that I can gain is by taking your stuff. And I think that takes us back to a very scary period in world history where everyone was always thinking about war. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. So we need that productivity growth to keep reminding ourselves that like, just because people have a better life, that doesn't mean that other people necessarily have to suffer. Like we could all have a better life, basically. I think so. Yeah. And is there another way to have that kind of faith in a better life and improvement and more efficient use of resources that doesn't involve this kind of like obsession with growth and with raising profiting, profits <laughs> and consumerism and just endlessly disposable, you know, goods? Maybe. I mean, remember that that growth doesn't have to mean just using more resources and, you know, more like disposable plastic packaging and stuff like that. You know, growth (laughs) growth can be anything that we like. Economic growth is not – in the past, it was, of course. Like if you're thinking about people in the 50s, it's like, wow, suddenly I have a blender. I don't know when that was invented, but okay. (laughs) I I have a color TV. I have little plastic packages. But – it doesn't have to be that. It can, you know, people say like millennials consume experiences. It can be that. But there really is also this this thing about monetization. And sometimes, and this is a real problem for economics because economics has real trouble measuring the value of stuff we can't monetize. Mm-hmm. And so that really is, that's a problem for economics, not necessarily for the world because we create a lot of value. And I, the, the highest value thing that we actually do is just, is to be kind to each other and, and to emotionally support each other. And unless it's some formalized thing like psychotherapy, that really isn't monetized. And I think that as that becomes a more important function of what humans do, economics will be less and less able to measure the real value that's being created and the real growth that's going on. Because if you could really measure that, you'd see that real growth could just be growth and how nice we are to each other. And, and we don't value things like child care and we don't value things like, you know, house keeping house at home Teaching. or whatever. Teaching is reimbursed, but it's not reimbursed adequately. Barely. Yeah. It's not reimbursed at the level that it the, at the value that it it creates basically. If that Probably makes not. Sense. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. right. That's and we, right. we don't put an economic value or a, a correct economic value on like clean water and clean air and, and things like that. Well, that's right. like There's the whole. Of, yeah, I mean, a lot that's... of externalities that we don't. Yeah. And just yeah. people not being jerks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, we don't value that. Ultimately, economics is not a theory of everything in society. Right. People treat it like this theory of everything, and it's not. It is a theory of some of the things that happen in a society, but you need other social sciences and ways of understanding things that are not necessarily sciences or codified at all to understand human society. Yeah. So now we're going to take a little quick break, and then we're going to talk to Noah about one of the most famous books ever. Let's talk about Isaac Asimov's foundation. Like a lot of economic thinkers like Paul Krugman and our former boss, Nick Denton, have kind of held up foundation as like one of the great works of science fiction that deals with economics. And what do you think about it? It's not. (laughs) Care to expound (laughs) further? Tell us more about it. Our former boss, Nick Denton, have kind of held up foundation as like one of the great works of science fiction that deals with economics. And what do you think about it? It's not. (laughs) 
care to expound <laughs> Tell further? Tell us more about yeah. are able to guide it through, you know, thousands of years of, of development. These are the psycho historians. Psycho history. Psycho history. Psycho. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Um. <laughs> psycho historians. And so the, the point is, that, so that idea was an idea that lots of people in the early 20th century had, and especially Soviet mathematicians and social scientists were extremely interested in this idea. And they took some of their smartest people and they said, go figure out how to do this. And those people created things like the law of large numbers and statistics. And a lot of modern statistics actually does come out of that effort and that belief that you could predict society that way. But it doesn't work because it's just too complex. I mean, you can't even predict earthquakes. Our prediction is very short term. So there's a thing called classical chaos. Even if you didn't have, you know, quantum randomness, you don't even need that. There are situations, lots of situations, and most situations in the normal world where tiny, tiny perturbations in initial conditions that you can't even measure balloon into giant changes in the future state of the world. And the most well-known example of this is called the three-body problem. And uh, there's a famous science fiction novel by that name. But basically, if which ironically has people being hyper-rationalist and predicting thousands of years in the future. So it's (laughs) they didn't the book didn't learn its own lesson. But (laughs) it's like if you just take like three atoms or three balls orbiting each other, tiny, tiny disturbances can make it behave completely differently. And that's infinitely more true in economics, infinitely more true in society, there's no way that the, the Harry Seldon, the, the scientist and foundation, could have predicted that far in the future with any degree of accuracy at all. Mm-hmm. Especially because presumably there's more than three bodies involved. <laughs> so there's like... It's there's like many. The, yeah, it's like the four billion body problem. Or exactly. And in fact, even in foundation, this ends up happening. The whole plan, you know, goes to hell when a sort of a, a Trumpian figure called the mule, this guy just comes out of nowhere and wrecks the whole plan. And in the end, the plan has to be reestablished or put back on course by a bunch of telepathic wizards who show up out of nowhere, <laughs> kick the mule's ass. <laughs> <laughs> and make him go away. And so in the end, it, you, really, you, you needed a bunch of wizards. Yeah. Telepathic wizards. I mean, that is what we need in real life. It's true. So it's this Gandalf sort of, for president. <laughs> so it's this sort of fantasy of, like, again, hyper-rational people who, are, who can control everything. And, like, I think you said on your blog that it's basically the kind of social sciences envy of physics. Well, I mean... If anyone really thinks you can predict the vast sweep of history like that, they're being a lot more arrogant than physicists because physicists understand that you can't use the motions of particles to predict a tree. Right. <laughs> physicists <laughs> understand that you can't do that, much less, you know, human society. And the economists who think that they could derive a theory of everything, and, and there aren't many, but there are some economists who try to say, well, okay, look, just with the, these few variables measuring like the quality of institutions, we can predict the development of society thousands of years in the future, hundreds of years in the future. There are people who say things like that. And I don't think a heck of a lot of that research, to be honest. But there are people out there trying to be Harry Seldon. And I don't think they're going to succeed. What is some science fiction that you think is good for thinking about economics with, like that actually offers us economic models that are fun to think about that aren't just kind of like, oh, we need some wizards to solve this? Cory Doctorow has done a really good job of this. Makers is probably my favorite science fiction book economically. Oh, that's interesting. It really foretold the era when everybody sort of becomes a hustler, this sort of fragmentation of the economy where everyone's trying to like do their startup and, you know, like... The gig economy. The gig economy. It really did foreshadow that. And also, 
Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, a short novella, it really foreshadows what happens when a lot of the value that people create can't be monetized and, and people are creating value through their human interactions and how do we make a society with institutions that deal with that. That was incredibly interesting too. Cory Doctor is just really good at this. Mm-hmm. Another book that I really like is The Dispossessed. Yeah. Love By that Ursula book. Le Guin. That book is amazing. What do you By like Ursula about that? So The Dispossessed shows how basically economic systems are very contingent on your situation because you have this, this moon that is basically this anarcho-syndicalist uh, society where nobody owns anything, but it only works because everybody is just always so desperately poor. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really realistic. I mean, I, I actually don't know what her background was, but she must have known a lot of anthropology because like that's very realistic. Her, her parents were famous anthropologists. Well, her father, Albert, Alfred Krober, was like one of the founders yeah. of anthropology. Krober Hall at Berkeley, which is the anthropology oh building, is named after her dad. Wow! And, yeah. and her dad's best friend, or one of his, her dad's best friends, was was Edward Sapir, who came up with the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Oh, holy crap! Yeah, which wow. is not where Whorf gets his name. No, but sadly, it does create a lot of bad science fiction. Wait, was she friends with, with Samuel Delaney? Did that influence Babel Seventeen? I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, she was friends with Delaney. I think. Yeah, oh gosh. they were in the same circles they for hung sure. Out. Yeah. So I have a question, which maybe is orthogonal, which is that now we have fantasy worlds like World of Warcraft, which generate their own economies. Is that like, would you have predicted that? Is that kind of a natural outgrowth of fantasy worlds that we've seen before? Or oh, Of course. And, you know, economists, actually, EVE Online is the one they love. That's mm-hmm. the one that economists are always studying because EVE Online, you think it's about giant space battles, but actually it's about getting other people to do work for you. <laughs> And so it's great. You have you actually built a whole fantasy economy, which people enjoy simply because it looks like spaceships. So you think that that's more interesting than World of Warcraft, where it's just kind of like it's just trading things in the game, I guess? Or So there actually have been economic models that work like World of Warcraft, but World of Warcraft, everything sort of just falls into your lap mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of you having to go produce it. I see what you're saying. So you don't have to hire anyone. There's no like principal agent relationship where I'm like paying <laughs> you to like right. mine shit for me or whatever. Right. Although they in, did have in reality- problem. Yeah, but also in reality with World of Warcraft, outside the game, like people were paying other people to play for them and things like that. So it did create, yeah, this whole weird external economy. Which is the subject of another Cory Doctorow book. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Also, I mean, you know, Neil Stevenson writes about this in Reemd as well. And not not about World of Warcraft, but a different game, like a fake made up game that creates its own gold and stuff. So, yeah. Is that something that's happened historically before that people have invented like fantasy worlds that created their own economy unless i mean I maybe know. the nation state is that or something yeah. maybe. the central bank is like a <laughs> i don't know that's a really good question i mean there's um you know there were i guess like back in the old days of judaism people used to get paid to you know sit around and argue about the bible and the, <laughs> and the commentaries and stuff like that but then um <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's sort of like that's sort of me. Yeah, I don't know. Like as Jews, I don't know if we should. <laughs> we, we still say, have. We should, I don't know. Should we say that our ancestors were playing uh, uh, an RPG or whatever? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> an RPG with Yahweh. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I wanted to play a clip from like one of the most famous science fiction novels, which deals with a very specific economic situation. He who controls the spice controls the universe. So that was Dune. So that's a story basically about like a scarce resource where there's like a monopoly that controls it and whoever controls it controls the universe. And, you know, how useful is Dune for thinking about like things like fossil fuels, but also other kinds of scarce resources and and the limits of monopoly power, I guess. 
Well, I read Dune for about five pages before I realized it was all just an allegory for the modern Middle East and oil industry. Right. And with Paul Mwadib as Osama bin Laden. Um, but well, what before. about the worms? The worms are like so cool. That's no, it's it's true. The worms are cool. Yeah. They, but, there's no there's no real world equivalent of the worms. In real life, we just started very slowly making a synthetic version of the spice, which was, of course, batteries. And so that's that's a way of transporting energy and we can capture energy from the sun or from wind or whatever and store it in the batteries and then we won't need oil anymore and then you know Saudi Arabia's economy will be in trouble. But interestingly Dune, I mean Dune's a fantasy book really. And ultimately the fact that they didn't substitute away from spice that, that all the incentives for innovation didn't make scientists go figure out how to create something better than the spice was very interesting and Oil is a great example of this because we tr- we've been trying to replace oil for a very long time with hydrogen fuel cells and with all kinds of other stuff, and it just has never worked. And finally, we may now, you know, knock on wood, with electric cars and other stuff, we may replace oil. We tried with biofuels. That didn't really work well. We kept trying. We were still yoked to nature by our dependency on this one resource, and that influenced geopolitics and economics a lot. Uh, we may finally get away from it. So I want to talk about one of my favorite fantasy stories about economics, uh, which is Obelix and Company, which is one of the Asterix uh, graphic novels. Asterix, of course, is a famous French cartoon character who is like a tiny little guy, hence Asterix, um, who has magic powers. Like everybody in his village has superpowers from this potion that they all drink that enables them to resist Julius Caesar and the encroaching Roman Empire. And in Obelix and Company, one of the Romans comes up with this genius plan to just finally destroy this one locus of resistance, these superpowered French guys, by basically getting Obelix, who is this Asterix's best friend, who makes these like giant obelisks, hence that's why he's called Obelix. This Roman guy comes up with a genius way to destabilize this like locus of resistance by getting Asterix's best friend, Obelix, who's actually named that because he creates these obelisks. Uh, as like his job or whatever. And basically they, the Romans convince Obelix to produce a lot more obelisks and sell them to them. And it becomes a giant industry. And soon everybody's making obelisks and there's a huge obelisk fad in Rome and everybody's buying all the fancy Roman patricians are buying obelisks and it becomes a runaway obelisk bubble. And the whole village is like, instead of fighting the Romans, they're being co-opted by Roman capitalism. And then of course the obelisk bubble bursts and there's no more demand for obelisks and the obelisk industry collapses and everybody is like horrified. Um, and it's they like needed this, planned obsolescence. They, needed, know, they obelisk, needed obelisks obel- that could crumble. They needed crumble. obelisks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they needed obsol- obelisk obsolescence. Yeah. That's right. And like, but it's this, this amazing like depiction of this like bubble economy and how it, this it, it's both a deliberate strategy for destabilizing resistance and also it's this kind of unsustainable thing because you can only sell so many obelisks before everybody who wants an obelisk has an obelisk. Right. Well, so that's, um, you know, I haven't read this, obviously. So I, <laughs> but <laughs> You're missing out. And yeah, you do have destabilizing bubbles. Absolutely. That's a, that's a real thing that happens all the time. But one thing it interestingly shows is the limits of this idea of late capitalism. You know, you know late capitalism. Yeah. And this, this idea of capitalism, uh, you know, sort of keeps perpetuating itself by telling you to want more and more things and creating demand through advertising and, and making these insatiable demands and blah, blah, blah. And, I think that that is, you know, that's obviously a, a fear, and that was an important fear in the mid 20th century when people were, 
getting more and more material stuff. And I, but I think you actually do see a satiation point. You see people saying, you know what? I have enough stuff. And now what I want to buy is advice from a Japanese person on how to get rid of my stuff. Yeah, I was going to say Marie Kondo comes along and destabilizes the destabilization. <laughs> right. Right. And we just don't know what people are going to want in the future. We can make a few guesses, but we just don't know. And we don't know how the economic system will evolve. And, you know, Marxists tried to be Harry Seldon and predict the evolution of history, but in fact they can't. So I want to refer to a tweet of mine that I liked. Uh, which is after late capitalism comes later capitalism, even later capitalism. Are you sure this train is running? I feel like we've been standing here way too long capitalism and our current stage. No wonder the bands didn't show up. The concert was last week capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) So does that mean that you think we're already capitalism's already dead and we're in some new system that we haven't named yet? The capitalism that prevailed in the mid 20th century is mostly dead. The capitalism that prevailed in the early 20th century is essentially completely dead in America and is now functioning in like China and Bangladesh. And um, it just turns into something else. And people have stuff they want and they try to figure out ways to get it. And sometimes they try to buy it and sometimes they try to make it. And sometimes they try to get other people to make it for them. And sometimes they get a whole tribe of people to steal it from other people. And then sometimes they vote for people they think will give it to them and blah, blah, blah. And we'll figure out even more ways. Please contribute to my Patreon of getting the stuff we like. I don't really have a Patreon. I was kidding. <laughs> but we have a Patreon. We have a but Patreon. <laughs> please contribute to these people's Patreons or Patreons. And so basically, things are going to get weirder. And it's not going to be anything that, that Marxists predicted when they coined the term late capitalism. So we're not going to have a socialist revolution. We might, but it won't look like the one they predicted. So what would you call this system that we're in right now? Is there any kind of um, unifying narrative theme. I mean, I think the reason why, you know, I think back in the 19th century when Marx said like, okay, the defining characteristic of our economic system is this thing called capital and it has to do with surplus value and it has to do with, you know, a lot of other stuff that we're not going to go into. But we talked about in our capitalism episode. I mean, is there any kind of defining feature of this economic system that we have right now in the U.S. and part of the West? Uh, That's a deeper question than I know an answer to. I mean, there's obviously things that are really important, you know, uh, Capital is still really important because, you know, private equity comes in and like buys all the houses in a neighborhood and raises the rent. So the idea that who has the capital rules is still very much an important factor in advanced economies in some ways has become more important. And then but you also have all these these digital things that we don't pay for and network stuff and people consuming experiences instead of goods. And this is all new. This is all weird. And I don't know if we have a name for this yet, sort of hypitalism. <laughs> Everybody just hyping everything and, and trying to hustle other people out of their money constantly all the time. It takes almost no capital. And it's not really labor producing stuff anymore either. It's not like I labored and then I produced this cup. It's like I labored spouting bullshit on Twitter and then people gave me money because they liked that. And so I don't know. Like, but I mean, it's, it's that's weird. the same as like the way television used to work or the way a lot of other media used to work in terms of, you know, people produced bullshit and other people subsidized them in one way or another. It's, right. still, co- it's still commodification. But it's it used to take. Right. It used to take so much capital to do that. You mm-hmm. had, you know, now that everybody's abandoning TV and everybody and, you know, everybody who has just a little bit of money can start a podcast, start a medium or just shit post on Twitter all day or on Reddit. And so like that is slowly replaced 
interesting, you know, instead of like supermodels who were backed by all this institutional money to tell you that like in the 80s, like Cindy Crawford is the most beautiful woman, blah, 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 blah. And then um, now you just have random people posting photos of themselves on Instagram and that's replaced supermodel. And they are commodifying themselves. Like they're doing it right. to sell products in some cases. In other cases, they're just doing it for free. But it's not always the same because commodification is different if you slap a price tag on it. When you say, please give money to my Patreon or Patreon, I'm agnostic on that. You don't put a price tag on it. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's different. That's an important difference because yeah. you never quite know, you know, different people are actually paying different prices for these things. So it is commodification, but it's a different kind. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't require as much capital. It doesn't require these big institutions like to do massive amounts of financing and, and to push all this stuff. People are still buying and selling stuff and trying to get stuff from each other in ways and provide stuff to each other in exchange for other stuff. But it's different. Yeah. So if basically the future of capitalism is it gets weirder and like that's kind of the, the, the framework, what are the stories that, that we should be reading that are already out there or should be writing or should be thinking of that kind of ex- explain and help us to understand the it gets weirder model of like twenty early 21st century capitalism? I don't know. You know, I, I've, I've read a lot of science fiction about post-humanity and about humans who are just incomprehensibly weird. And then I look at kids, you know, watching hours upon hours of videos about how to make slime or like playing Fortnite. The kids are weirder than the post-humans in a Charles Strauss story. Mm-hmm. Like just the next generation is weirder. Or, or watching people like on Twitch or something about digital natives who grew up with social media and how they interact and how they get status and mm-hmm. how they form love and hate and, and relationships and connections and stuff like that is already weirder than the post-humans that we were trying to imagine back in like the early 2000s or the 90s. And so it's going to get weirder. And it, yeah, technology drives it and enables it. We can't predict it. We can't be Harry Seldon. I have no doubt that we will write many good stories. You guys will write the good stories, and I, I will read the good stories. <laughs> I will buy well, them. You can write good factual stuff that helps us understand what's happening right now. I will try. I'll do my best. <laughs> you do it. We like it. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Do you have any like nonfiction economics books that you would recommend people read to like figure out the weirdness? To figure out the weirdness of what's going on now uh, is very difficult. Economists won't know about it until after it already happened for years and they can measure <laughs> statistics. But one, one interesting book to read if you're interested in the AI, you know, sort of economics of new technology of AI is called Prediction Machines. And that's, that's a good one. The Inner Lives of Markets is about the economics of platforms. And then uh, there, you know, there's lots of sort of business books about the business of free internet media and stuff like that. Anyway, there, there's books about the sociology of these things too, which ultimately could be even more informative in the anthropology of these of, of online stuff. Yeah. So, so if you want to understand like economic, you know, history and where we came from, there's some other books. There's a book called Concrete Economics by Brad DeLong and uh, Stephen Cohen at Berkeley, Berkeley professors called Concrete Economics, which is about economic systems and what we want from economic systems. And they have this thesis that what we really want is for the people in charge to tell us what we're going to get in some concrete manner. So it's a pun, obviously, because concrete, but the idea that that sort of predictability is is more important when designing a system. Mm-hmm. That that's very important. People have to know, like, I will get to do this. I will have. I think it was. I don't remember. Maybe Hoover who said a chicken in every pot and blah blah. blah. And these these very standard middle class commodities for the early 20th century. They said this is what you will get. You will get a house. You will get a two car garage. You will get these things. And now it's like our system has evolved in an unhealthy manner that just sort of tells people you will get something. 
<laughs> and we don't know what you're going to get, but maybe if we do these policies, we'll get more of whatever that is. And It'll feel <laughs> great. And you'll, get to, and you'll get to kick the guy that you don't like. So yeah. that'll be good, too. I know that you used to teach economics. So there are there any good introductory texts for someone who's just like, I really want to understand economics. I read a lot of sci-fi and I just want to know, like, what, like, how do I start? You know, like a good introductory book. Well, so there's a, a project called The Core Project, C-O-R-E, that is coming at economics education from a much more uh, empirical angle much less, you know, of the old sort of like, we'll tell you a hundred year old theory and this is how things might work, kind of obsolete stuff. Look at the core economics project and it's it's all free. Mm-hmm. So cool. that's online. Open source, yeah. Awesome. And you don't have to pay all the money. That's great. Nice. That's a good tip. Thank you so much for yeah. joining us, Noah. You can find Noah on Twitter as... Noah Opinion. Yeah, which is N-O-A-H... P-I-N-I-O-N. And you yeah. can read him on Bloomberg. And is there anywhere else people can read you? Oh, well, I, I still have my blog, No Opinion, which I which I post from. And uh, once in a while, I'll, I'll do something else, but mostly Bloomberg and yeah, awesome. Twitter and blog. All right. Check it out. Yay. And thanks so much for listening to us. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct, the Hugo-nominated podcast about science fiction and the real world. And we have a Patreon. We have so a Patreon. So you can uh, do some Patreon. of that weird, yeah, post, uh, post-capitalist post economics with us. <laughs> Give Yay. us what, what you can afford. Um, it helps us do the show and and um, pay for our awesome production, which is from Veronica Simonetti, our producer here at Women's Audio Mission. You can also find us on Twitter at OOACpod, or you can follow us on Facebook. You can find our podcast probably wherever you found it since you're listening to it right now, but you can find it on Apple Podcasts or any number of other places. Please leave us a review. That helps people find us. And also, you can hear us next week. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. 